It is uh, good to be with you guys this morning. Again, thanks so much to Heather, the dance ministry ladies. Oh, beautiful. So well done. So proud of you guys. Uh, it's great to have you this morning. A happy end of your spring break, if in fact you did get a spring break. And if in fact you can call it a spring break, even though it snows. Is that still possible? You still call it spring break if that happens? Just making sure. Just want to make sure I get the terminology right out here. Maybe spring break, you go somewhere it's hot. But uh, last week, I don't know if you remember this, I was a little overconfident about my, um, my, my claim of the weather. I was really excited that it was so hot and that it snowed on Wednesday. Uh, I learned the proverb goes like this, pride cometh before the snowfall. And so you live and you learn, I guess. But anyway, I know it's hard to believe, uh, but next week is Easter. Isn't that crazy to believe that? It's, it's coming upon us fast. It means Easter egg hunts, Easter dresses, and uh, Easter sugar comas which are always fun. Uh, did you hear they just came out with Peeps-flavored milk? What? What's wrong with you people? It's Peeps. Anything Peeps is from heaven. All right, guess not. Um, but speaking of sweet, have you heard about our services next weekend? Eh? Eh? Like how I did that? So we've got two services, as Emily said, two identical services, both in here, 8.30, 10.30. About 75 minutes or so, we're super excited. Hopefully we'll get a lot of visitors, a lot of your friends, family, Members, neighbors, coworkers, um, classmates, bring them with us or bring them with you uh, to be with us. We're excited about the morning. Shar is going to set up some pretty cool experiential learning stations downstairs in the kids' wing. So either before, after, even if you need to during service, you can go down and be a part of those things. Should be a great morning. Uh, super excited about that. If you're here for the first time, we're walking through a series called The Story, utilizing this resource right here. What we're doing in this uh, series is we're trying to connect all the different dots of Scripture to each other to see how they all make sense of and are a part of one another, and also how we can connect all of those dots to our story and help make sense maybe of our life and what we've been going through. If you are joining us maybe for the first time or first time in a long time, stop by the Welcome Center. We've got a bunch of copies of the story. We want to all be on the same page, literally. So grab a copy, uh, grab one of those books, our gift to you. We'd love for you to be reading along with us. We've covered a lot of information, have we not, church, over the last few months in our story. We're flying through the Old Testament, seeing how it all fits together. And so before we dive into chapter 13, I want to make sure we're all on the same page as to what's happened 1 through 12. Here's a video that summarizes it pretty well. created the universe and a planet called Earth. Humans were formed in God's image to continue God's work. But soon, humans decided we want to live our way, not God's. Selfishness and violence filled the world. So God started over with just one family. And God made a covenant with a man named Abraham. The land around you is now yours. Your family will be my blessing to the entire world. In just a few generations, they grew into a large nation named Israel. The Egyptians became fearful and forced the Israelites to be their slaves. Through a humble leader named Moses, God led the Israelites in a great exodus back toward their promised land. Along the journey, God gave laws and commands to help the Israelites follow God's ways. Finally, after 40 years of struggle and complaining in the desert, the Israelites arrived back home in the Promised Land. In victory, the people worshipped God, but soon after, they turned from God and lived their own rebellious ways. This became a pattern from generation to generation. Israel's greatest judge was Samuel. He followed God's ways and spoke for God as a prophet. He told Israel that God was the only king they ever needed but they desired to be like the corrupt nations surrounding them and insisted, we want a human king who we can see to rule over us just like the other nations. 
So Samuel found a man named Saul to be Israel's first king. His reign began well, but before long, Saul stopped following God's ways and made many bad decisions. So Samuel told Saul, Because you have turned your back on God, God has rejected you as a king. Samuel's search for the next king led to a courageous young shepherd boy named David. When David grew up to be king, God blessed him and the Israelites greatly. But David was not perfect. He had an affair with a married woman and committed a murder to cover it up. But deep inside, David always loved God and would return to living in God's ways. Known as the poet warrior, he wrote music to God called Psalms, heartfelt expressions of prayer, struggle, and thankfulness. After many years as king, David gave the throne to his son Solomon. God also told David, one day, one of your descendants will rule with a kingdom that will never end. There's no story like the story of God. There's no storyteller like God. What's crazy though is this story, this story about uh, life and loss and love and everything in between, that story, it's not just one you have to read about, it's one you actually get to live out. And so we're hoping that you get to see yourself and hopefully lose yourself, maybe find yourself in that story. So that's where we've been. We're all on the same page. We're good to go. Ready to move forward now? Chapter 13. Let me pray about where we're going this morning and then we'll, we'll do it. Father, thank you for this place. We assemble here. We gather here in your name, seeking your face, wanting to hear a word, Lord, from your voice. Would you show up in mighty ways like you have in the days of old? Would you speak in powerful ways? Would you touch each of us in a way that we need right now, God? Would you change us from the inside out? Would you fill us with your spirit instead of our own? Because your spirit is full of life and joy and peace and faithfulness and goodness, Father God. Send that spirit now as we dive into your word. Make it so. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. How many have heard about the most interesting man in the world? A certain adult beverage company has used him as their as their uh, poster boy. I love these commercials, right? The most interesting man in the world. When he drives a car off the lot, its price increases in value. If he were to punch you in the face, you'd have to fight off a strong urge to thank him. He never says something tastes like chicken, not even chicken. His tears can cure cancer. Too bad he never cries. The most interesting man in the world. But have you ever heard about the smartest man in the world? Now, I'm sure most of us have friends or family who are self-proclaimed as such, who believe they are that person. But this morning, we're actually going to read about the man who was that person, smartest man in the world. What would you call somebody who had more money than Bill Gates and Jay-Z, sold more albums than the Beatles and Taylor Swift, wrote a book on romance that outsold all of Nicholas Sparks' books combined, who was more sought after for advice than Dr. Phil? Who would you call that person? I'd call him Swamped, but the Bible would call him Solomon. There's a name for a man who did all of those things and then some. We just learned in that video, God's people wanted a king. They wanted to be like everybody else. So they chose a man named Saul, a man who was tall, dark, and handsome, but a man who ended up being twisted, dense, and a handful. So God redeemed the situation, as he always does, and he anointed a new king. He instead, this time, lifted up a shepherd boy named David, who had a heart who pleased God's heart. But that was so last week, so chapter 12. So now we move into chapter 13. See, David is nearing the end of his life, and so now it's time for this king, the one chosen by God, to choose another in his place, to choose one of his sons to sit on the throne when he leaves. So the chapter begins with the death of King David and the passing of the torch to his son Solomon. Solomon's really known for four things. We're going to study these this morning. His wisdom, his wealth, 
his wives, and his work on the temple. Let's start with his wisdom. Let me ask you a question. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Maybe it was a coach, a parent, teacher, mentor. Somebody said something to you, and it stuck forever. You couldn't ever get it out of your head, and it just changed the way you saw life or maybe saw your place in it. Any, any ideas, anything come to mind? Best piece of advice ever? Well, a few years ago, uh, one of the folks that I love watching, Jimmy Fallon, he asked people to submit on Twitter the worst advice they ever received. Here's what some people said. Now I thought I'd share some of my favorite worst advice tweets from you guys. Uh, this first one's from at Fitzgibbon Ross. He says, my dad said, if you're getting beat up, start to laugh and pretend you enjoy it. It will creep them out and they'll stop. <laughs> oh. No, that's awful advice. Right. You sure? This one's from at Jules Gardner. He says, my mom told me you should carry around a banjo at college. That way you can be the banjo guy. <laughs> Do I want to be the... Yeah, I want to be banjo guy. This one's from at Bunch O' Cherries. He says, my dad told me to never buy anything from a guy who starts off with pssst. That's pretty good advice. That's good advice. That's good advice. This one's from at Ben Levine. He says, my dad warned me never to blink during job interviews. (laughs) When do I start? I can start next week. Pleasure seeing you. Thanks, thank you. This one's from at Lil Drill. She says, My sister asked my dad how to lose weight. His advice was just stand with one leg on the scale, the other on the ground. Incredible weight loss system, yeah. Yeah. I lost 100 pounds. (laughs) This one's from at Mark Oliver PV. He said, my dad told me when you see a shark's fin, swim directly towards it to establish dominance. (laughs) No. What? No. Dad, stick to whatever you do. You don't know anything about sharks. Most of us have received or given our fair share of advice, have we not? Everything from uh, money to marriage, from fantasy football to raising kids. Some has been good and some not so good. But this morning, I want to look at Solomon's life, those four things we mentioned before, his wisdom, his wealth, his wives, and his work. And I want to look at the advice that he would give us in each four of those areas, because I think it might be the best advice you ever hear. Early in his reign, God comes to Solomon in a dream, and he asks him a question, and it's a question that most of us have only ever dreamt about. It's on the bottom of page 176 in your storybook, 1 Kings 3. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, Ask for whatever you want me to give to you. You thought Aladdin had it good. Solomon answered, Now, Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. But I'm only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people that you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or to number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? Give me wisdom, he says. The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, since you have asked for this, and not for a long life or wealth for yourself, nor have you asked for the death of your enemies, but for wisdom in administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart, so there will never, there, uh, there will never be anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Never has, never will. This story reminds me of a guy who walked into a diner one time with an ostrich. He sits down and he has dinner and he orders a meal. The waitress brings him the bill for $8.49. He reaches into his pocket, pulls out a handful of bills and some change. Without even looking at it, plunks it on the counter and walks away. 
Waitress counts it up. It's exactly $8.49 plus tax plus a 15% gratuity to the penny. Next day, same things happen. Same thing happens. Guy walks in with the ostrich, sits down, has dinner, orders something different, totally different price. Same thing, reaches into his pocket, pulls out the money on the counter, exact amount of the meal, tax, 15% gratuity. Well, the third day he walks in with the ostrich and the waitress has to stop him. How in the world are you doing this? I don't mean to be nosy, but how do you just pull money out of your pocket like that and it's always the exact right amount? Guy says this, well, I was walking along the beach one day. I found this old lamp. A genie popped out. Said, I'll grant you any two wishes your heart desires. So I asked the genie that for the rest of my life, I'd always have exactly the right amount of money in my pocket for whatever I wanted to buy in that moment. Waitress says, you are brilliant. That way you always have the money to buy the stuff. You never run out. Instead of giving an amount, instead of wasting it all, you always have what you want. You're the smartest man I've ever met. Guy looks at the ostrich and says, I'm not that smart. The other thing I asked for was a chick with long legs who'd never leave me. That situation, probably hypothetical for that guy and hypothetical for us, but it wasn't hypothetical for Solomon. It actually happened for that man, but instead of a genie, it was God. Instead of being given two things, it was just one, but instead of asking for something for himself, he asked for something on behalf of him for the sake of the people he'd been called to lead. Whatever you want, Solomon, is yours. No limits, no boundaries, no rules. What is it that you want? And he says, give me wisdom for the sake of everybody else. Here's Solomon's first piece of advice for us. Ask God to make you a blessing and not simply to give you blessings. See, Solomon's life, his legacy, they start off so strong because his eyes, his focus were not on himself. And thus when he's given this request or given this offer, his, his answer is not something for himself. It was a request to become someone who would be a blessing to others, not just for a bunch of blessings for himself. Instead of getting a gift... He wanted God to make him a gift. And boy, was God glad to grant that request. Look at 1 Kings 4, 29. So God gave Solomon wisdom and great insight, a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the men in the east and greater than all the wisdom of Egypt. His fame spread throughout the surrounding nations. He spoke 3,000 proverbs. His songs numbered 1,005. Don't forget those five. He described plant life. He taught about animals and birds, reptiles and fish. Men of all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom. They, uh, they were sent by all the kings of the world, for everyone had heard of his wisdom. So Solomon not only gained wisdom, he became the wisest man to ever live. Everything from biology to zoology, everything from engineering to economics. This man knew a little something about everything. Much of his wisdom is recorded for us in the biblical books of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. When you're flipping through, that's where these books come from, the life and wisdom of Solomon. Now, the first situation where Solomon encountered uh, something where he needed to rely upon this wisdom happened one night. Two prostitutes came to him, two women. Both had given birth to baby boys just a few weeks before. But during the night, one of the baby boys passed away. So the mother who lost her son snuck over and stole the baby boy from the other lady. Well, you can imagine the chaos that ensued when they both woke up. That's my baby. No, it's my baby. No, it's my baby. So they went to Solomon. And I love on those crime scene shows, right, where the detective walks in and no one else knows what to do. He's like, see that little blood spot way up there on the roof? Yeah, I see it. I know exactly what to do. Even though everybody else is clueless, they see all of the clues. And that's exactly what happened with Solomon. He says, that's an easy one. 
He said, bring me a sword so I can cut the baby in two. Then each woman could just have half. That sounds incredibly cruel, but as soon as he's done uttering those words, one woman screams out, no, king, please don't hurt the baby. She can have it. See, Solomon immediately knows that's the mother because the mother would never want harm to come upon the child. She'd rather give it up than see it hurt. And he knows the other woman who didn't say a word at the threat is not the mother. She's a crook and should be punished. A friend of mine tried this same technique a few years ago with his two boys. They kept arguing and fighting over this one little Hot Wheels car. My friend grew so tired of this. He told the boys, I am sick of the fighting over that one car. I am going to get out my hacksaw. I'm going to cut that car in two, and each of you can have half of it. The boys yelled out, cool. (laughs) Didn't work out too well for my friend. Worked out perfectly for Solomon. He was granted this incredible insight, this incredible wisdom, wisdom that allowed him to minister to, bless, serve others. It wasn't about himself. Best piece of advice you might ever hear, maybe it's Solomon saying, ask God to make you a blessing instead of simply asking God for a bunch of blessings. That brings us to his wealth. Because God was so pleased with his first request, he ended up giving Solomon a bunch of other things as well. Page 177. Moreover, God says to Solomon, I'll give you what you've not asked for. I'm going to give you wealth and honor. So in your lifetime, you'll have no equal among kings. If you walk in obedience to me, as David did, you'll also have a long life. I love on how page 191, we get a glimpse into Solomon's great riches. It literally says, there was none greater in riches and wisdom than Solomon. Year after year, everyone came and brought him gifts. His house was filled with silver, gold, robes, weapons, spices, horses, and mules. We learn that Solomon accumulated 1,400 chariots, 12,000 imported horses. He refused to use anything that wasn't pure gold. So he had gold forks, gold plates, gold cups, gold chairs. He sat on a huge gold-covered throne made of ivory. He had hundreds of homes, a fleet of trading ships. He even bought apes and baboons and peacocks as pets just because he could. And who wouldn't want a peacock as a pet? But you want to talk about lifestyles of the rich and famous. This is it. This is it. And even though Solomon had it all, even though he tried it all, even though he could buy it all, at the end of it all, this is what he said. Proverbs 23, 4. Don't wear yourself out trying to get rich. Be wise enough to know when to quit. Ecclesiastes 5.10, whoever loves money never has enough of it. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. Here's what I think Solomon's advice would be to us today. Your definition of enough will never actually be enough. So many of us think that the longings in our hearts, these cravings that we have deep in our soul, they will be satisfied through more. It's a more mentality. If I will just get more, if I can just accumulate more, try more, drink more, sleep with more people, buy more, travel more, borrow more, 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 more. You know that more mentality? I know it pretty well. And the smartest man who ever lived, the man who said he denied himself nothing that his eyes desired, a man who said he refused his heart no pleasures, when he looked back on it all, when he assessed it all, when he reflected on it all, he called it all meaningless because he never enjoyed any of it. You ever tried to catch the wind? Oh, pretty foolish. Seems impossible to do. Because it is. It is a silly thing to try. Yet Solomon says, if you try to fill your heart with more, more stuff, more sex, more success, it's just as foolish as trying to catch the wind. 
this endless pursuit that we enter into, these cravings that we have, and this idea that just something else, something more, something better, shinier, more expensive, that will satisfy my heart. That's, that, I've just always longed and, and been drawn to that, that truth, that dynamic, that reality. And so this summer, I'm excited. We're going to take a break from our story series in between the Old and New Testaments. We're going to do an eight-week series called Desire. We're going to look at the seven core longings of the human heart, everything from intimacy to power, greatness, a, a legacy, beauty, love. We're going to look at those longings and see those longings are not evil, but more stuff, more sex, more success. They'll never satisfy those longings. So stay tuned. I'm excited for that series. We'll come back and visit Solomon during that series. But as Solomon reflects on his life, he says, it's basically, it's not about accumulating stuff, guys. It's not about getting more stuff. It's really about enjoying what you have. Read some of the end of the book, especially Ecclesiastes 5, 6, and 7. He uses this word, enjoy. See, Solomon was so busy getting, 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 he never actually got to enjoy it. He even says, God may bless you with the life where you get a lot of stuff, but you also better pray that he blesses you with the ability to enjoy it. Because if you don't enjoy it, it's all for naught. So the wisest man, the smartest man, the richest man tells us, your definition of enough will never be enough. You think one more TV, one more vacation home, one more zero on your retirement account, one more drink, one more partner. You think one more will satisfy. You think that will be enough, but we know it's not enough. Never enough. Because when I get that, I want that. When I have that, I want that. My definition of enough will never be enough. So instead of thinking about when will be enough, just think about what you can enjoy. That's the word I want you to focus on this week is what can I enjoy that I already have. That brings us to Solomon's wives. I'm not sure where the phrase, do as I say and not as I do, came from, but I'm attributing it to Solomon. This man, maybe more than any other, lived a life that didn't exactly match up with his words. See, he had a blind spot. That's a nice way of saying it. He had this one sin he could just not overcome. His weakness, much like his dad, was women. Lots of women. 1 Kings 11, 1 says this. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not marry them because they will surely turn your heart after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love and his wives led him astray. As he grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord. Many of you know if you put a frog in a pan of boiling water, Hopefully you don't make a habit of doing that, but it'll immediately jump out to save its life. And for good reason, because it's scalding hot water. But if you put that same frog in lukewarm water, he'll sit there as if I just prepared a little bubble bath for him. But then as I gradually turn up the heat, Kermit stays put. And eventually that water gets warmer and warmer. He doesn't even realize his bath has turned into a boiling cooker that's about to kill him. Well, that same thing happened to Solomon. He became lackadaisical with his lovers. The heat got cranked up, and eventually he got cooked. Solomon's wives, I'm not just talking about two or three here, or even 11 like his dad. Solomon had 700 wives. Can you even fathom that? <laughs> Guys, that just seemed like the oddest thing ever. I mean, 700 ladies, 700 cycles, 700 mother-in-laws. Sorry, kids are in here. I apologize. 700? I can't even begin to fathom that. Well, these women, they created a culture of corrupt 
worship. And some say Solomon married these women for political allegiances and alliances, and that, that would make a little bit of sense. Some say he married them for his pornographic appetite. That would make sense too. But we don't know what his reasons was, but he ended up marrying and falling in love with hundreds and hundreds of women from other nations. These women did not know God. They did not know God's laws. They did not know God's commands. And this was a big no, no, no in God's eyes. The smartest man in the world ended up doing the dumbest thing in the world. He started sacrificing and worshiping other gods. And not just any gods. The text tells us this. On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all of his foreign wives who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their gods. Now, to the casual reader, that means nothing, but the worship of Molech and Chemosh, it's called detestable because it revolved around child sacrifice. You honestly offered up your youngest or your oldest, or whoever you had, your kids, in honor of these gods. And since the Israelites had entered this land, God said, don't you dare do what they do. You will never sacrifice your kid on my behalf. I will do it on your behalf, but I will never have you do it for me. And so when Solomon starts to do this, a major turn happens in his life. You see, his career began as he reunited a baby with its rightful mother. His career really came to an end as he started taking the lives of other babies. So I think Solomon's advice to us would simply be this. Don't marry 700 pagan women. <laughs> Best advice you'll ever hear. Maybe it sounds more like this. Only give your heart to someone who is pursuing the heart of God. Only give your heart away to someone who's given their heart away to the Lord. Giving your heart away the New Testament calls it being yoked with someone. It, it means this. It means that you are so emotionally involved, so relationally invested, so physically connected, you cannot break free from that other person without major force, without major trauma. A yoke was something that two oxen were, were bound together with. This, this, this piece of wood that they could not break free of on their own. So giving your heart away to somebody or being yoked with them means that their actions, their attitudes begin to affect you. And sometimes negatively so. They do this, and so you do this. They go this way, so you go that way. They start to walk down that path, so you do. They say yes to that, they agree with that, they start to believe that, and so do you. And God says he cannot have his people give their heart away to non-believers. They cannot be yoked with non-Christians. Now here's the thing, church. I think that giving your heart away, at least in my own opinion and experience, it happens at different times for different people. See, a girl took a risk on me, and dated me as a non-Christian when we were 17. So I'd never say, stay away at all costs, forever and always. I'd be a fool to say that. But giving your heart away means something a little different. It happens at different times for all of us. Some of you, you give your heart away when that person looks at you from across the room. It's like, <gasps> yeah! Others of you can date for years and, and kind of stay at least with your heart still somewhat in here. Now, if you broke up with that person, separated yourself from that person, it'd still be hard. There'd still be pain, wouldn't there? But you, but you could at least get back from them what you've given. If you give your heart away, you'll never get it back. And so I think it's important, especially youth, that you think critically as it pertains to who you date, who you say yes to, who you invest in, who you give your heart to. Even if you love that other person, even if you've been together for years, if they're not seeking the Lord's heart, they cannot handle your heart. 
They won't be responsible with your heart. So, so befriend them, possibly date them, but at some point, when you start to give your heart away to that person, you have to make a decision. I'm only going to give you this if you've given yours to the Lord. And I've had friends make that ultimatum with people. Listen, I love you and I want to be with you, but I feel like I'm yoked with you. I feel like everything you're doing is affecting me, and I cannot continue in this relationship unless I see you make some headway with the Lord. It's a hard conversation. But we've got to follow Solomon's advice. Only give your heart away to those who have given theirs to the Lord. Make sense? I think it's some of the best advice you'll ever hear. The fourth thing Solomon was known for was his work. Solomon's father, David, asked God if he could build him a house that was a little bit more worthy of God's name. They'd basically been using a pop-up tent called the tabernacle. David said, you need more than this. You deserve more than this. Well, God said no to David's request. There's a whole sermon there about God's no. So what he did instead of building the temple was he got everything ready for his son to build the temple. And boy, did Solomon build one. If there were ever a house worthy of being on cribs, it was this one. God's house. The temple that Solomon built. According to biblical record, 180,000 men worked day and night for seven years to construct this temple. It wasn't necessarily all that huge, but it was incredibly ornate and incredibly beautiful. Bronze pillars, gold-covered walls, intricately carved furnishings. This was awe-inspiring to say the least. But you see, the temple was not so much about the structure itself as, as it was about who was going to live within it. It wasn't about the structure as much as it was about the spirit that was going to fill it. Page 186. Solomon said, Lord, I have indeed built a magnificent temple for you, a place for you to dwell forever. Then Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord, in front of the whole assembly of Israel, spread out his hands toward heaven, and he said, Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you. In heaven above or earth below, hear the cry and the prayer that your servant is praying. Arise, Lord, and come into this resting place. You and the ark of your might, may your priests be clothed with salvation. May your faithful people rejoice in your goodness. Solomon is finished praying. Fire came down from heaven and consumed the offerings and sacrifices, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Then Solomon stood and blessed everyone in a loud voice, saying, May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our ancestors. May he never leave us or forsake us. And may all the people of the earth know that the Lord is God and there is no other. Wow. This leads us to Solomon's last piece of advice and probably, well not probably, definitely the most important one. Having God at the center of your life is far more important than anything you do in this life. See, all the Proverbs, all the building projects, all the imports, all the exports, all the peacocks, all the women, all the gold, all the experiences that Solomon had, nothing compares to this very moment. The moment when Solomon looks to heaven and he says, God, I want you to come from that place to this place. I want you to go from being out there to being in here. This is Solomon's crowning achievement. This is his single most wisest decision, his smartest thing, his intelligence, all led to this one invitation. God, come. Come down here. If God doesn't fill that temple, it's just another building, just another ornate religious structure, just another space taking up space. But if God does come, if his spirit does reside in that place, everything is different. And the same is true for each and every one of us. If God doesn't fill us, if God's not at the center of our lives, if God doesn't come in here, which Paul would say is the new temple, if God doesn't fill this space, then it's a dead space. And eventually it will rot in the grave. 
But if the Spirit comes into this space, if God is at the center of my life, then my life is changed. Everything is changed forever. See, if Solomon's life and his words teach us anything, it's that knowing the God who made it all is actually the point of it all. Solomon got so many things wrong, something that most of us can relate to, but he got this one thing right, and so can you. You can ask God to be the center of everything, to go from out there to in here. You can invite him to come in. You can invite him to dwell and to live with you. The wisest thing you could ever do is to welcome God into your life. The wisest thing you could ever do is to ask Jesus to come down and to live in you and with you. The wisest thing you could ever do is to invite Jesus into your heart. See, when Jesus showed up on the scene, you know what the crowds were saying? They said, the one who's greater than Solomon has come. One who's greater than Solomon. Solomon was the best of the best of the best. No, one who's greater than Solomon has come. And on that Palm Sunday... With what the girls depicted so powerfully with the palm branches, what they were doing is they were saying, God, come, come in, Hosanna, save us. Go from being out there to being in here with us. And what they did on that first Palm Sunday, I think some of us need to do on this Palm Sunday. The wisest thing you could ever do is to join the cry of heaven. Join the cry of Solomon. Join in the cry of Palm Sunday and say, God, come in. Come in and save us. Come in and be with us. At the end of his day, Solomon would say this, some of his last words, the fear of the Lord is truly the beginning and end of all wisdom. Fear God, he says. Keep his commands. That's the point of your entire life. So having God at the center of your life is far more important than anything you'll ever do in this life. That's the best piece of advice I think you'll ever hear. So let me pray that goes from being advice to something that changes us from within. God, we thank you so much for your story for writing it originally, God, and then for including us in it. Thank you that we don't only have to just listen to this story, but that we're a part of it, God, that our lives make sense as we make sense of characters who lived long ago. And maybe nowhere is that more true than when it comes to Solomon, God, that his life is an example for us to learn from. God, would you help us to realize the truths that Solomon learned in the course of his life, and we don't have to be so so dull, so foolish to have to relearn those things ourselves. God, would you help us to be a blessing and to stop asking for blessings? We have enough blessings. Now Now it's time for us to live out Abraham's call to be a blessing. Help us to turn our eyes away from ourselves and on to those around us. God, we also pray that you will help us to to know when enough is enough. Help us to realize that having more of whatever it might be will never satisfy our heart. Only you will satisfy our heart. Help us to enjoy what we have. Help us to just, even today, enjoy that old car on the way home. To enjoy that that, that sack lunch that that we brought with us, God. Help us to enjoy the little things that we have and not want something so much bigger, so much grander, something we think will help us have life. God, we pray that our hearts will be hearts that are devoted to yours and that we will give our hearts away only to those who've given their hearts to you. Lord, help us to love, befriend, minister, and serve non-Christians, but help us to be careful not to give our hearts away to them, God. They cannot hold them. They're not worthy to receive them. They will hurt them, lead them astray. Help us to stay strong, God, to give our hearts to those who've given their hearts to you. And God, maybe more than any other piece of advice, would we invite you in 
like Solomon, would we ask you to come down, to come and live with and live in us. Would you be the center of it all? This building, this, this world, our lives mean nothing if your spirit doesn't descend and fill this place. So would it come, God, in each of our hearts? Maybe now some of us are even praying that prayer for the very first time, that Jesus, you would be the center of it all. That Jesus, you would go from being out there in an abstract concept to an intimate relationship and a lover that I know by name. Help us, God, to to make you the center of it all, not worry about what we're doing in life, but that, that you're at the center of our life. Please make it so. Help us to be wise like Solomon. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.